today on Edge Effects. We start this book with the premise that capitalism is an ecology and it operates, of course, within a larger ecology of the biosphere. So we're not saying this is everything, but we're saying if we don't understand capitalism as a world ecology of power, capital and nature, we are going to end up with very partial politics and very partial analyses. Environmental historian Jason W. Moore and EdgeFX editor Stefa Velenitsky discuss his book, A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things, co-authored by Raj Patel. They discuss capitalism's role in creating the new global ecological regime, often referred to as the Anthropocene, and discuss some possible paths forward to a more sustainable and just world. Hi, Jason. Thanks so much for joining us on the Edge Effects podcast. Thanks, Stefa. And we're here to talk about your wonderful book that I had the pleasure of reading and enjoyed immensely. And just to launch right into things, I would love to hear who was the audience that you had in mind for this book and what would you like them to take away? Well, in a history of the world in Seven Cheap Things, Raj Patel and I have done our best to write a book that would be accessible to students and activists and also academics to try to think about capitalism as an ecology. And that means a lot of different things, but it comes out of one of the main, one of the emergent fields in the environmental humanities these days, which includes environmental history and philosophy and the qualitative social sciences, which is world ecology. And world ecology says that we have to think through relations of power and production and reproduction and nature and capital as mutually constituting each other. So instead of hiving off capitalism into something we call economic and then looking at all the terrible things that capitalism or industrial society has done to this external thing called nature, we show that and there are many terrible things. We do something that includes that but moves deeper. And we are really concerned with showing how the modern world from Columbus, not from the era of the steam engine, but from Columbus has been premised on what we call cheap nature and a logic of cheapening. And that doesn't just mean to make low in price. It means to cheapen, to treat with less dignity, to degrade, to disrespect the work and life of women, nature, colonies, indigenous peoples, Africans, many others around the world who were not part of this very narrow band of the 1% in Western Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries. So we start this book with the premise that capitalism is an ecology and it operates, of course, within a larger ecology of the biosphere, which in turn, as we know, orbits around the, the sun and we have all sorts of things that go on there. So we're not saying this is everything, but we're saying if we don't understand capitalism as a world ecology of power, capital and nature, we are going to end up with very partial politics and very partial analyses of the situation today. Wonderful. And that actually brings us right to our next question, which is your critique of the term Anthropocene and your use of the term Capitalocene as an alternative. Could you speak to that a little bit? It needs to be clarified from the outset that there are, well, there are many Anthropocenes, but there are really two big Anthropocenes. And the, the term literally means age of man or age of humans. 
And one Anthropocene is overwhelmingly geological. And so I've called this the geological Anthropocene. And this is the debate amongst geologists over stratigraphy, over what are the key markers in the geological record of the modern world. And so far they've come up with three, atomic residues, chickens, chicken bones, and plastics. So these are the great achievements of the modern world in the geological record. Now, as we know, it's become the Anthropocene, the age of humans has become a wider umbrella term across the humanities and social sciences and into politics, into mass media. Uh, the Economist, the New York Times uh, has uh, blessed this concept. And this is what I call the popular Anthropocene. And it returns to a very old and very stylized version of the history of the modern world and has been central to environmentalist thought. So the Anthropocene, the age of humans as a popular umbrella term, has gone back to an older historical view of the origins of the modern world and the origins of ecological crisis. Chances are you wake up an environmentalist in the middle of the night and after she's finished cursing you out, she'll say, well, it begins in England with the steam engine, with the coal mines, uh, uh, with the emergence of a modern economy that is driven by coal and steam. Ultimately, this is an interpretation that falls back on some view of human nature, that humans were, were ultimately really compelled or would have eventually stumbled upon this. The reality, I would say, is much different, and the Anthropocene as a way of understanding history is deeply problematic, because it says that the problems of the present era, the transformations on a global scale of the present era, are the creations of the Anthropos, of humanity as a whole. So it's created a, an agent of planetary change called man or humans, but really as Kate Raworth reminds us, the great journalist uh, Kate Raworth reminds us, the Anthropocene is a Manthropocene. That the concept itself has been framed by men, but that the Anthropocene itself has been premised on the erasure of gendered inequalities, of racial inequalities, of colonial inequalities, from start to finish. So we have to be very clear that the capitalocene alternative doesn't say, oh, it's all about economics. I think that would be a replication of the kind of thinking that has created this situation. The capitalocene argument says that capitalism is a way of organizing the relations between humans and the rest of nature. It is a system of nature, capital, and power, and that we have to put these together. And we have to understand also that most of the things that go on in the capitalist era are not done by capitalists. They're done by states and they are enabled by cultures of domination, especially cultures of racism and sexism. And so acknowledging that all of us fit into and outside of capitalism to various degrees, I want to talk to you about your metaphor of capitalism as a gravitational field. And I'd like to hear in what ways do you see that opening up space for identifying the non-capitalist modes of relation which you want to exculpate from global climate change while still acknowledging capitalism's immense pull? That's a fantastic question. And it, it, the, the premise actually asks us to think a little bit about philosophy. Marx reminded us that philosophers have only interpreted the world. The point is to change it. 
But he wasn't saying that philosophy is unimportant. So we need to be very clear about the philosophy that we use when we talk about capitalism. Now, one of the things that's become fashionable in the critical humanities and social sciences is to identify the key agents of change as somehow outside of capitalism. And that brings up a basically a longstanding problem in epistemology and ontology. That is, what is and how do we know it? So if we say some parts of, of the world today are not capitalist, we have essentially a view that, that adds up reality from the parts. But if we say, and I think this is a much more compelling and correct answer, that today there's no dimension of human life, of the life of the, the planet as a whole that is untouched by capital, then we get closer to an understanding of capitalism as a gravitational field. So in a gravitational field, and this was, this was also one of Marx's favorite metaphors that I think is still not really appreciated, there's tremendous contingency. But as long as that field holds, then there are real patterns. So a lot of times academics, but even activists, when they emphasize the particular and the, the instability of modernity, forget that relational thinking also means, and historical thinking means that we identify real durable patterns of inequality and power. And that's part of what we have to look at. And we have to see and, I, and Raj Patel and I do, I think, a pretty good job of this in the book, that we see that that power is never simply imposed. The power of capitalism is never simply imposed, that it is a constant process of struggle from above and resistance from below. And one of the central lines, cultural lines of struggle is precisely around who gets to count as part of nature and who gets to count as part of human. And what a lot of environmentalist thought has forgotten, not students of Bill Cronin, of course, but what many environmentalists have, have forgotten is that the idea of nature as external to something called humanity or society has historically been the philosophical and conceptual hammer through which to impose new racialized and gendered and class orders. That brings us to the seven cheap things, which I want to not neglect in our interview. You do a fantastic job of denaturalizing the phenomenon of cheapness, and you write that keeping things cheap is expensive. Uh, could you talk through what is cheapness, how does it show up in your seven cheap things, and how is it produced? That's a fantastic question, Stefa. And the first thing that I'm going to highlight is just how deeply an eternal view of nature has crept into our vocabulary. In this great question that you posed, and this is something that we do as, as critical scholars all the time, we speak of denaturalizing, that is to make historical, to lay bare the fault lines and contours of inequality, of power, to make them seem, rather than eternal, very specific. And one of the fundamental things that we need to do, one of the fundamental tasks, not just of scholars, but also of activists, is to show that nature, the web of life as a whole, not only includes humans, but is always historical. Mm -hmm. And this is something that scholars in the humanities have done a better job of, in contrast to scholars in the environmental social sciences, where, well, contrast all the studies that have taken on the, the problem of global production, global trade over the past 40 years. And there 
is a raft of concepts that historicize that that process of production and exchange of flexible accumulation and just-in-time production and all of these wonderful terms that have really elucidated our historical conception of production. Contrast that with the dominant approach in the environmental social sciences, even for people who are self-identified Marxists, and they identify nature is still just nature. It's not the, the nature of the, of the neoliberal era. And even when we are asked to consider neoliberal natures, we are asked to consider those in their particularities rather than in how the geography of neoliberal capitalism has been a struggle with and around the redefinition and the enactments of what counts as nature and what doesn't. And that has a long history that's, that's central to our thinking about race, class, gender, colonialism. Okay, so once we understand that what we are doing is historicizing this issue of cheapness, what we do in this book is we identify, well, really six cheap things, because the first cheap thing is not a cheap thing at all, which is nature. Nature is not a thing. Cheap nature is a strategy of cheapening the lives and work of humans and the rest of nature in the process of accumulating capital. And as we know, capitalism is a very peculiar beast when it comes to this process of accumulating wealth. It's not distinctive because there are markets. It's not distinctive because there's wage labor. It's not distinctive because there are rich and poor. It's distinctive because what's valuable gets crystallized into a very weird and indeed absurd definition of wealth, which is the average labor time in the average commodity. Now, this is something that critics of industrial agriculture have long recognized, that industrial agriculture is monstrously inefficient in every single way except for the productivity of labor. It's wasteful in terms of energy. It's toxifying. It's uh, dangerous to the health of the people who eat industrial agriculture foods, etc. Now, that's one dimension of it. The other dimension of it is that this wealth that is accumulated exists we call it capital, it exists only for the purpose of generating more wealth. And that is very, very fraught, very difficult to do, because you have to continually find new places to invest your capital that exists only for the purpose of making more and more capital. Well, how do you do that? Well, historically, that's happened through a series of interlinked movements of big empires, of big science, and of capital looking for cheap energy, cheap food, cheap raw materials, and cheap labor. And so that has depended crucially on this process of global conquest. That's why capitalism now encompasses the whole planet, because beginning with Columbus, there is an inexorable, insatiable, desire for more cheap natures. Now, those cheap natures, as I've tried to highlight, are not just about cheap in price, not just about driving down in price, although that's central because there is a kind of economic core that distinguishes capitalism from other civilizations. But that process was never carried on primarily by businessmen and almost always men. It was carried on by planters and industrialists and merchants always backed by the extraordinary and fearsome power of empires and states. And that's part of what we show 
all the way from beginning with cheap nature to discussions of race and gender and policing and nationalism through the arc of this book, really trying to tie together something that might be boring or at least hasn't really been paid enough attention in environmental studies, the question of how capital works through the web of life with the ethico-political cultural dimensions of domination and inequality. And once we do that, we can begin to connect what is really going on with capitalism. It is not simply about economics. It is also a system of power that is centrally about organizing the web of life in a particular way that is, well, as we've been seeing with these hurricanes lately, absolutely disastrous. So, Jason, you bring up the hurricanes that have been happening recently, and it brings me to my next point, which is that you use the phrase that climate change is an enclosure of the atmospheric commons. And I'm so fascinated by that phrase because I'm curious to think about how this framework can be applied in order to understand the kinds of catastrophic environmental issues that have been happening recently. That's a wonderful question, Stefan. To think about capitalism's relation with and within the global atmosphere, the biosphere, we need to have a bit of a different perspective on how capitalism works in the web of life. And I talk about that through something called the double internality. And that says something relatively straightforward, despite the high sounding academic tenor of that phrase. It means that what capitalism has done is on the one hand to externalize carbon emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, into the biosphere, and therefore the biosphere is internalizing what capitalism has dumped into it. So there's a movement of treating the atmosphere as a cheap garbage can. So cheapness is always there. Now, at the same time, what's happening through the current tipping point in the world's climate system, and that tipping point can't be exaggerated for all the reasons that we're reminded of all the time in the newspapers, but also because we need to remember that the present moment is the most dramatic moment of climate change since the end of the last glacial and the dawn of the Holocene. That was about 12,000, 13,000 years ago. That era of the Holocene has been an era of what climate historians and scientists like James Hansen call a long era of unusual climate stability. This is also, of course, precisely the era of human civilization and settled agriculture. So we have to understand that the moment that we're living in is a spectacular moment of climate change that will dwarf previous moments where civilizations essentially broke down under the combined weight of climate and associated socio-ecological dislocation. This would extend to the fall of the Western Roman Empire in the fourth, fifth, sixth centuries. It would also extend to the crisis of feudal civilization in the 14th and 15th centuries. So we have a moment where the tipping point in the climate system is now compelling capitalism to internalize its problems. And that is so fundamental because we are seeing, amongst other things, the increasing power and energy of these hurricanes I'm going to come back to that in a moment. There's also a crucial link with the history of industrial agriculture that we tell in this book. Now, if we pause for a moment and we think about the area in the United States that's been most devastated, it is clearly Puerto Rico. 
Now, first of all, Puerto Rico is a colony, and it emerged first as a colony growing sugar. Now, why is sugar important? Well, sugar and slavery and industrial agriculture and colonialism all formed together. So while the model of industrial agriculture was later applied to corn and wheat and soybeans and all the rest, it really began with sugar. And that's a story that we tell in A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things. In order to understand the severity of the impact of something like the Hurricane Maria on Puerto Rico, we have to understand that this is the outcome of five centuries of colonialism, cash crop agriculture, racism, and so on and so forth. That's why if you go just a, a little bit away from Puerto Rico, if you go to the island of Cuba, you see a dramatically different response to the danger and threat of hurricanes. That if you live in the United States, you are 15 times more likely to die from a hurricane than if you live in Cuba. And that's quite extraordinary because while we don't need to be romantic about Cuba, we can also see, and here's the link to agriculture again, that Cuba is full of remarkable lessons of what to do when the cheap oil and gas and inputs of industrial agriculture stop coming in. And in Havana, you have the largest city in the world that is fed by the highest proportion of locally grown, that is within the city, produce. And that is, if you put those two moments together of food and agriculture, of climate, and then the issues of industrial agriculture and of capitalism, you begin to have a sense of just how serious that old slogan of, of environmental justice activists has been, which is there's no such thing as a natural disaster. Building off of that, what I would like to talk a little bit about is the response that we are occasionally seeing in the news around things like geoengineering or space exploration. And in your book, you touch a little bit on robots and automation as well. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on more technocratic or just technology-oriented solutions to both environmental issues and social issues. How can we understand technology within this context of cheapness or as an answer to it? The question of technology is really one of the most dangerous questions that not just environmentalists, but I think radicals and progressives of all stripes have faced, that there is an allure of technology as, first of all, as machine-like, that is very dangerous because it's not clear that the machines like the steam engine or the internal combustion engine or the modern computer, for instance, have been as central to the history of the modern world as we like to think. They, they are certainly at the center with many other factors. So, for example, we tend to think of modern ecological crisis coming from a, an assemblage of machine, the steam engine, and resource, coal. But in fact, it is far more compelling, in my view, to look at the technologies of map making and cartography and surveying, without which you couldn't have modern empires and you couldn't have modern uh, markets and land. The technologies of race and gender and 
big philosophical concepts that essentially fed into a way of organizing life and power and economy in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries that we usually call something like the Enlightenment, the Scientific Revolution. But basically what we saw was not just in the realm of ideas, but in the concrete practices of colonialism, this separation of nature and humanity. So for instance, the leading political theorist of the American Revolution, John Locke, he didn't live during the American Revolution, he lived a century before that, but he wrote, amongst other things, the Constitution for Carolina. And that Constitution said that an indigenous person could not enter into a contract with a European. And of course, women couldn't enter into contracts either. And oh, by the way, the indigenous peoples were in a state of nature, so we can take their land and improve it with a capital I. So what I'm saying here is that one of these soft technologies, the dualism of humanity and nature and the idea of their separation has been grounded in the practical violence of the modern world, not just the killing, but also the violence of industrial agriculture and greenhouse emissions and industrialization, the violence to the web of life itself. That means that when we think of technology, we have to immediately decenter that. And I think that what we're seeing in the present moment is exactly what you've highlighted, is a turn towards technology as a form of escape. And this comes up with geoengineering. Now, it seems to me that geoengineering may, in, in principle, be good or bad. The Anthropocene discourse is, I think, fundamentally an anti-political discourse in precisely what you, you, you identified, this turn towards geoengineering, technocratic politics. Let's give the command of the problem over to the experts. And while we, you look at who's in the White House and we can say, well, we need more expertise, and I agree with that, we also need to look at the problem and say, this is really a crisis of democracy and the outcome of five centuries of a particular model of organizing nature in which colonialism, racism, and sexism has been central. Plenty of food for thought in terms of non-technocratic technologies that could speak to what we're dealing with in terms of atmospheric and non-atmospheric challenges. We have this deeply embedded notion, and this cuts across left and right, that the modern world has been about progress with an uppercase P. We're learning to question that. I think when we look at agriculture especially, we are often encountering today that in order to deal with the climate crisis, yes, we need some modern agronomic knowledge, but we also need very ancient forms of knowledge. The reservoir of knowledge of peasant and indigenous cultivators all around the world to deal with agriculture which is central to dealing with climate change. There will be no climate adaptation or mitigation without a fundamental bottom-to-top, top-to-bottom rethinking and reenactment of farming and food. So we need to be very suspicious of the dominant way of thinking about the modern world, which is that it's about progress. And I'm not sure that that's a plausible argument at all. So on a completely different note, I'm curious to hear... What was your favorite part of the book? Um, what did you enjoy researching and writing the most? I think what's been most exciting to me has been what I was thinking when I wrote my previous book, Capitalism in the Web of Life. And Capitalism in the Web of Life raises a lot of these questions of power and race and gender and resistance. 
but they were largely implicit because it was a very different kind of book and trying to unpack and reconnect a lot of vital conversations around philosophy, economic crisis, ecological crisis, and food and labor, and especially the gendered and ecological dimensions of what I call unpaid work. So what we were able to do, what Raj Patel and I were able to do in this book is to really bring the focus more to these questions that we often regard as separate. That is the questions of race, gender, and class, and environmental sustainability and ecological crisis, to really bring them together, because it seemed to us that these were questions that related to politics that ultimately boiled down to a longstanding divide between jobs versus environment. Uh, the economic and social versus the environmental. And that's absolutely destructive to any politics of climate justice in the coming century. So it's practically necessary to unthink and rethink the philosophical and historical connections between power, capital, and nature. And that was what really excited me and still excites me because I think that there's so much work to be done and there are so many extraordinary especially younger scholars who are now really getting this, that if you are a scholar of race and gender, you cannot treat nature as an add-on. And if you are a student of environmental change, environmental history, you understand, you're coming to understand, and young scholars are doing a remarkable job around this, of understanding how race and gender and colonialism are not just the context for these problems, but are centrally related in each other. That is the problems of environmental devastation, landscape devastation, and violence and inequality around race and gender and colonialism and class. At the end of the book, you and Raj Patel offer the framework of a reparations ecology as a way of moving forward. Can you describe the components of a reparations ecology? Well, a reparation ecology isn't just writing a check and saying it's all good. That's not what we mean at all. What we implicate are the experiences of national trauma, and we mentioned the experiences of Guatemala, which went through one of the worst indigenous genocides under the U.S.-backed dictatorship there uh, that we've seen in the, in the 20th century, and of South Africa uh, around apartheid and the struggle around apartheid. And I think central to what we're saying is that the question of reparations is fundamental to remembering the violence and inequality of modernity and coming to terms with a way of organizing life and the relations, not just between humans, but of humans and the rest of nature that is emancipatory. So in my thinking, this involves breaking with a, this longstanding jobs versus environment, economy, ecology, thinking uh, in social movements and also in scholarship. That it says, well, much as women and People in the colonial world in the early 20th century said to socialists who were white and male, they said, look, colonialism and gender are not separate from the questions of socialism. It's not that you get socialism first and then the white guys are going to treat women and the colonial world um, in, in a just way. It is that the question of sustainability and for all life and justice for humans, these are interlinked questions. And they are, in fact, deeper than interlinked. They are intimate. They are 
different moments of the same question. So we cannot pretend any longer that nature is a productive resource to be used for the benefit of some selection of human beings, that the emancipation of all humans and the emancipation of life itself in the sense of a reciprocal and care-oriented ethos of life and power has to be at the center. And I think that that's what we're getting at when we raise this issue of reparation ecology. That's fascinating because it reminds me of the insistence of this part of the book that reparations go beyond monetary reparations and therefore that they engage a different kind of environmental relationship uh, that isn't necessarily a quantifying one. You reference the platform of the Movement for Black Lives, which actually identifies a number of different forms of reparations. They demand accessible and historically honest education. The platform demands access to health care, to food, to housing, and to land, as well as to cultural recognition without sort of a recourse to a dollar number or a particular sum. So my first question is, what are the kinds of reparations that you see that go beyond monetary reparations happening around you? Well, I think at their best, some of these demands that you enumerated from Black Lives Matter, and we're also seeing similar a similar tenor of demand from food sovereignty movements, where the demand is no longer just food, but that food is fundamental to democracy, to cultural determination, to gender equity, etc. We're seeing this with climate justice movements in, in some of their best forms. These movements are advancing demands that defy the redistributionist strategy of capitalism from the beginning. That is, let's cut a check and economic growth will benefit us all. I think what's coming into focus is a politics that is radical or revolutionary in a very new way. And I, along with Phil McMichael and others, have called this a new ontological politics. That is, it is a politics that questions capitalism's very definition, very basis, its ontological condition through especially this nature society binary, which is related to the binaries of colonialism and race and gender and class and all of the rest. So when we talk about reparations, we need to look at these demands like the demands from Black Lives Matter, you know, say for healthcare. That demand for healthcare can only be met by decommodifying healthcare. Uh, many of these demands can only be met through a fundamental reversal of a five centuries long process, which is to extend the market to more and more and more domains of human and extra human life. So when we look at reparation-like demands, we need to understand them as not demands only for money, although sometimes money is going to be absolutely necessary, but also for essentially for the, the inverse of that, for taking key do domains of life, of education, of healthcare, of housing out of the market and that is something which we've seen now for 30 years. That is a, an issue on which neoliberal ruling classes across the world will not compromise. So that creates a very different kind of political situation. And of course, all of this is amplified by climate change, which is making business as usual more and more expensive. And I think one of the things that we say in this book is that reparation ecology becomes an important politics 
once business as usual can no longer continue. And while it's continuing for the moment, we can look back to other moments. This is why feudal civilization went away in the 14th, 15th centuries, because business as usual could no longer carry on in an era of climate change and agricultural crisis. Plus, oh yes, workers and peasants said, no way are we going back to a more brutal form of feudalism. And today, I think growing numbers of people are saying, we are not going back to a more brutal form of capitalism, and that the only way forward is out. We began this interview by talking about what you would like your readers to take away from your book. And I want to close in the, the interview by talking about what kinds of things we as academics and as people who have access to these kinds of academic adjacent conversations and platforms, what can we do to support a reparations ecology? And how do we fit into this current moment of social upheaval? I think the first thing that we need to be honest about is that these concepts that are in our vocabulary, hardwired into our thinking and our vocabulary of nature on the one hand and society on the other, the idea of these is separate and more or less independent, even if they interact, that's part of the problem. That's part of how modernity has reproduced itself for five centuries. So we need to be very honest about how that language is not just an analytical problem. It's not just that nature and society are so deeply connected, as Raymond Williams and Bill Cronin might say, that you can't separate them out anymore. The task is to understand how they fit together. That's all well and good. But we also need to go deeper to understand that the five century long processes and structures of race, gender, colonialism and capital accumulation are grounded in nature as separate from humanity, from society. So there is, in the spirit of reparation ecology, a need, especially if you look at North American environmentalism and the sad legacy of big green environmental politics in this country, there is a need for environmentalism to go through its own truth and reconciliation moment. That's a history of embracing Malthusian politics, of forced sterilization, of anti-immigration politics. That's a history that we need to come to terms with in a sustained way. So I think there's a political moment there for intellectuals who are committed to seeing the history of capitalism as one of, for lack of a better term, a system of cheap nature and a system that separates society and nature and, oh yes, relocates most human beings into the domain of nature. We need to come to terms with that. We need to remember that when peoples of color and women in this country struggled for civil rights, they struggled for civil rights precisely because they had been excluded from the domain of civil society. And in that sense, we have an opportunity to expand the remit of a deep, holistic, environmental thinking without collapsing and crushing difference. In fact, the opposite, to show how we can understand the politics of race and gender and class and colonialism in much more connective ways. That is, to see across these 
domains of social existence that our universities are premised on. They're premised on the divide of nature versus society, right? We have the, the, the real scientists and then the social scientists and the folks in the humanities. And what we need to do is to build alliances, to build conversations that try to heal that rift, an epistemological rift, a rift in how we understand the world so that we can begin to act on it. And I think that we're beginning to see some of that. We see it with the indigenous-led struggle against pipelines, especially there in North Dakota, where we saw, for the first time, a major split in the American labor movement around this question of jobs versus environment, with the remarkable National Nurses United saying that pipelines are a clear and present danger to the health of their patients, and for that reason, they will oppose it. That's a radical statement for a labor union to make, and it shows how they are willing to cross this divide of the human and the natural, and that that's a divide that's not real. We talk on this interview because we are connected with and within the web of life. So I think what we are saying with reparation ecology is that it's far more than just an environmentalist politics plus racial and gender justice. It is rather a rethinking of what nature means and what humanity means and what the question of justice means to connect these vital questions of sustainability and justice. Wonderful. One more question, actually. I'm curious to hear what is next for you? Well, there are several things next for me. Uh, the big uh, book that I've been working on for a while, and uh, Raj uh, Patel uh, joyfully distracted me from doing this big book, is a story of the origins of ecological crisis in the modern world. Wow. <laughs> Sounds expansive. And that's a story that takes us all the way from the fall of Rome to the Industrial Revolution, a singular industrial revolution, which has recently regained considerable favor amongst left ecologists and critical environmental scholars. And it's dangerous for a lot of reasons. First of all, ecological crisis did not begin in the Industrial Revolution in England. It began much earlier with Columbus, with colonialism, with the gendered counter-revolution within Europe that people like Silvia Federici have documented so well, with the emergence of modern science, going back to the botanical imperialism of the Portuguese and the Spanish in the ages of invasion. I won't call them ages of exploration. It involves making all of these linkages that I've been talking about. If we look at the Industrial Revolution, we have to see from the beginning that the steam engine was not the pivot of the whole process, that if we wanted to identify one process, it would be the linkage of slavery and plantation agriculture, that is industrial agriculture, and the cheap nature frontiers of the antebellum American South. But here's another implication that I'm finding that I will share with your listeners, is that the language of collapse has been used by many environmental thinkers, perhaps most famously Jared Diamond, as something to be afraid of. And what I found is something different. Now, history never repeats itself. We know that. So the history of the 21st century will be different. But if we look at the climate-induced, not driven, but climate-related, climate-induced collapse of Roman power in Western and Central Europe, what we see is something remarkable. We see peasants reoccupying and repurposing the Roman villas, the big agricultural estates of the Roman 1%. And we see the standard of living for 
peasants across Western and Central Europe going up for perhaps uh, three centuries, sometimes a bit longer, depending on where you were. So there was a golden age in the living standards for the 99%, if you will. And I mentioned this in, earlier in the interview that with the arrival of the Little Ice Age at the end of the 13th century, uh, you see another crisis of a civilization, a feudal civilization. And feudal civilization didn't just break down because of climate, but it was wrapped up with its structure of agricultural production, with climate, with trade, with disease, by the way, all factors that we're facing today. And when disaster truly, truly hit with the Black Death in the middle of the 14th century, there was an extraordinary moment of peasant and worker resistance that went on for a long time. And guess what? The standard of living for Western Central Europeans increased for perhaps two centuries. So in this light, collapse is no longer to be feared. It's not to be celebrated or romanticized, but we need to understand that the rich can only insulate themselves over the short run. Over the middle run, they're much more vulnerable as rich people, as powerful people, because what happens in a moment of fundamental climate change is, well, really that everything begins to change. So Naomi Klein is absolutely right. This changes everything. And it has to change our thinking and our ethos of how we as human beings exist on this planet. Wow. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for a wonderful interview and a fantastic book, Jason. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you and to have some more launch points for thinking about what comes next. Likewise, Stefa. And thanks for such a great podcast, too. I know that uh, uh, folks really benefit from it. That was EdgeFX editor Stefa Velenitsky speaking with Jason W. Moore, professor of sociology at Binghamton University. They discuss his new book collaboration, A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things, co-authored by Raj Patel. He is also the author of Anthropocene or Capitalocene, Nature, History, and the Crisis of Capitalism, available now from PM Press. You've been listening to EdgeFX, a production of J, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today's episode was produced by Brian Hamilton, Rebecca Summer, Sarah Thomas, and me, Adam Bierman. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. We'll be back soon with episodes featuring historians Richard White and Megan Raby. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to the EdgeFX podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review. That really helps connect us to new listeners. You can also follow us on Twitter at EdgeFXMag. And, as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgeffects.net.